Hello, and welcome back to Wisconsin Law in Action, a podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor of Law and Director of the Great Lakes Indian Law Center, Richard Monette. Professor Monette is a nationally recognized expert on federal Indian law and tribal law and teaches torts and water law here at the University of Wisconsin Law School. Today, Professor Monette is here to discuss the Supreme Court case Burkine v. Holland, which was argued in November of 2022 and will have an issue issued opinion very soon later this year. The case, according to SCOTUS blog, is focused on the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and whether its placement preferences, which currently disfavor non-Indian adoptive families in child placement proceedings involving an Indian child and thereby disadvantage those children, discriminate on the basis of race in violation of the U.S. Constitution, and secondly, whether ICWA's placement preferences exceed Congress's Article I authority by invading the arena of child placement the virtually exclusive province of the states, and otherwise commandeering state courts and state agencies to carry out a federal child placement program. Thank you for returning to the podcast today, Professor Monette. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Chris. I appreciate it. Sure. I was happy to have you on all the way back in March of 2020, and I'm happy to have you back now to discuss this important case. Oh, time flies. Yes, it does. Well, let's start our discussion today by reminding our listeners about your background. What is your professional experience and why come on the podcast to talk about Brookine today? Uh, well, I grew up in the reservation. Uh, my family, mom and dad are both tribal members. All four of my grandparents were. So, you know, all of the tribal life and federal Indian law on the ground in the dirt uh, was has been part of my life since, you know, since the beginning. Um, my tribe was um, subjected almost to a removal. It was certainly attempted to be subjected to termination. It was subjected to allotment. Both of my parents attended uh, Indian boarding schools. And my mother, in fact, uh, was taken from home when she was five years old uh, and uh, really didn't come home till she was 11 or so, including summers and, and as far as we could tell in holidays. Of course, those were poor times. Um, Boarding schools were a ways away. Uh, you know, it was it was costly to get back and forth. But uh, nonetheless, all of those, some of the more ugly happenings and policies in our historical relationship between the United States and tribes, um, my tribe experienced and my family experienced directly. And, and again, I'm not talking about my parents, my grandparents or great-grandparents. I'm talking about my mother and, and my dad. So... A lot of that stuff is very close to home. So I, that's why I went to law school. Uh, I wanted to continue to do this kind of work. Of course, I wanted to teach. I first went to a teacher's college and got a teaching uh, certificate, licensed from the state to teach uh, high school, uh, English and history. So it's always been there. And then and then when I graduated from law school, I, um, I ended up out in Washington, D.C., working for the Senate uh, Committee on Indian Affairs. And... Subsequent um, off-roads in my life, I also served as the Director of Legislation in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and I also uh, served as uh, Chairman of my tribe, uh, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. I was elected twice uh, to serve as chair. Um, and the, the, there are a lot of stories involving those things, which maybe we could have another podcast at some point, um, but those won't be the point of what we're talking about today. But that's some of my background. That's why I'm you know, so into this, uh, that's why it matters to me. I still have family on the reservation, brothers, sisters, uh, nieces and nephews, lots of them, children. 
uh, a son, at least one of them living on the reservation. Uh, so, um, you know, this stuff is really close to home. It's really important for me to to want to think it through in the right way and to try to, you know, help other people consider what, what might be some the right way or other ways of looking at the stuff that uh, might be helpful. So I'm happy to to do a podcast on the Brackeen case. Very right. important. And as I mentioned, the Brackeen case was uh, argued in November of last year. So what, in your opinion, are the most immediate and lasting implications of this oral argument itself? Yeah, well, of the argument itself, I would say it illustrated for us that in the last couple, three decades, we have kind of taken all these doctrines, moving parts in federal Indian law, and kind of tucked them into each their own silo. And so, and over the years, you know, you can just go through and look at federal Indian law and see articles on plenary power or preemption or trust responsibility. And this showed, uh, number one, that we've done that, probably to a fault. And it showed that it's probably time to go back and look more holistically at all of these doctrines, all of these moving parts, and try to wend them back together to show their interrelationships, show the logic of the interrelationships, show why the relationship between these doctrines matter and, and show why sometimes the way this, the silo approach has actually made them not logical and not work well. And so as I listened to the Brackeen oral arguments, I just couldn't get a, away from that thought as getting this, well, what about plenary power? What about the tribe? Well, what about, you know, like, well, yeah, no, yeah, we're thoroughly confused. So, <laughs> Um, if you don't mind, I'll take a little attempt to blend those together, among other things, as we as we talk here. No, please do. I'm very interested because I, yeah, I I agree with you. These these concepts can see very isolated, siloed, as you said. So we'll try to take them out, take a look at them, and then see how they all went together again in your words. Yeah, very good. So let's start with preemption. Can you tell me about that concept, and then tell us where that places in this hierarchy of all these different concepts yeah. as well. Well, and let me be clear. So I said preemption and plenary and trust, and I, those three clearly were raised a lot in the Brackeen opinion. Um, yeah, it's probably fair to say that the the, the issues uh, that apparently are being more squarely addressed by the court uh, involve um, also related doctrine, um, including one related that's about the states, commandeering of state government. Um, and so you just kind of think out loud up front, think about, well, if there's an act of preemption and it's an assertion of plenary power um, over a state, the state feels like its, it's being is being commandeered. Mm. And so to the extent that that gets confused with the tribes, you know, I want to make sure we're seeing there certainly a commandeering of tribal government uh, is an issue as well, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the other issue that got more to the heart of what most of the, apparently the tribes and and native uh, federal Indian law thinkers were concerned with, and that was the racial political distinction. And um, so, and as I've written before, and we talked about, I think a bit last time we did your podcast was the, uh, you know, sort of the holistic, uh, at least to that extent in the American system view of federalism. 
and how it affects um, the relationship. It is the relationship in our minds between the federal government and the states, but how it affects the relationship between the federal government and the tribes and the states and the tribes. And to try to get that figured out in a way that makes sense and is workable. And so I've presented a couple writings, I've published a couple things uh, trying to get at that. They kind of have taken uh, a, a bit in some uh, circles and in some cases even, but I think we're just not there yet. And so, um, of course, like everybody, I think I'm right. <laughs> so hopefully people would listen and uh, to this, read those again. Uh, I, I will get an opportunity to publish a larger book on it uh, soon. So, and we'll all um, get an opportunity to think it through again. I think it's very important. But right yeah. now, yeah, the use so started preemption. Well, that's important, I suppose. Um, one, because it teases out this pop culture thing about discovery, you know, and and so it's important to recognize that pop culture part of it. How do you discover something where somebody's already living and all that? Some great fun conversations and, you know, justify a, a parade in Chicago or Denver or something here and there. Uh, but what that means in the law uh, is a little bit different and very important to understand if we're going to protect sovereignty. It's important to protect our identity uh, and and it's and the identity that um, gets built by the external world and thus the parades in a Chicago or a Denver and thus wanting to you know say we were not discovered. That's important too. So I don't mean to suggest that that's not, but the the identity of of the tribes in the context of federal Indian law, in my mind, is paramount. Um, and I, I think I think most people concerned with the field agree with that. So I think we need to look at this this way. So I let's let's just think about the trajectory of preemption. Um, first, it was in the discovery uh, doctrine. And it's so important to, to hear that doctrine right. Um, but in the end, what it was, was the discoverer preempting others from discovering, right? And, and it's important to say that out loud. So again, that pop culture thing off the table, the, the relationship there was not the Euros and the natives, and we're discovering the natives or we're discovering your land. It was really between themselves. And I did, I'm just thinking, well, if we get to talk about this, there's an easy quote to find in Johnson versus McIntosh and in Worcester versus Georgia. And in one of them, uh, in Johnson versus McIntosh, Justice Marshall writes, but as they were all in pursuit, they, all the European countries, um, Christian European countries, were all in pursuit of nearly the same object. It was necessary in order to avoid conflicting settlements between them, right? And consequent war with each other not, not it's not in regard to the natives to establish a principle that's the doctrine of discovery to establish a principle which all should acknowledge as the law by which the right of acquisition acquiring the natives land that way at that point which they all asserted should be regulated as between themselves so one more sentence out of that particular quip this principle was that discovery gave title to the government by whose or by whose authority it was made, comma, 
against all other European governments, comma, which title might be consummated by possession. So very clearly in the law, forget pop culture for a minute at the stage, in the law, we have to recognize that the doctrine of discovery is largely an exercise in preemption. And one of the first clear exercises uh, in that at the, you know, at the at the birth of this nation and at the birth of this field of federal Indian law. In fact, if you don't mind, I'll, you, you know, you jump ahead. This was another 15 plus years or so. After that case, Marshall writing in, in Worcester versus Georgia, uh, the idea comes up again. And he says um, they were well understood, these um, discovery charters that the kings were issuing to convey the title which, according to the common law of European sovereigns respecting America, they might rightfully convey and no more. This was the exclusive right of purchasing such lands as the natives were willing to sell. The crown could not be understood to grant what the crown did not affect to claim, nor was it so understood, period. See, it's just so important to see that that doctrine um, primary uh, effect was internal to the European Christian nations as a, sort of a, a, uh, an implied and at some point express agreement amongst themselves uh, so that they wouldn't be committing acts of war against each other in their, you know, um, future attempts to acquire territory in the Americas. And so that is very clearly uh, a concept, an exercise of preemption, right? Mm -hmm. And that's important to get because when we then fast forward through the history of it and we get the King George's proclamation of 1763, an act of preemption too, the one that declared that territories beyond the Appalachian various ranges and sub-ranges declared that those territories were off limits to settlers and reserved to the tribes. Of course, the king saying, unless I decide to get it, right? So you can call it an act of selfishness, an act of greed, and whatever you want to call it, an act of monopolization. In the law, that's an act of preemption, especially if you can couch it in terms of, you know, some validity uh, in the law. So you can fast forward to the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 under the Articles of Confederation. The colonies has declared their independence as free and independent states. They put together these articles. They signed on. And um, they made that an exercise of preemption. And unfortunately for that one, it was a, uh, it was a flawed preemption because the Articles of Confederation gave the new confederacy, the new union, um, not, not yet the current union, but the new union, the authority to deal with the Indian tribes, including to acquire their lands. In other words, the king's uh, right of discovery was now descended to, um, according to them and their assertions of independence, to these new free and independent states. And they were going to say, well, we are going to delegate as successors to that discovery, right? We're going to delegate it to this new confederation we're creating. And so they did. And so, again, you know, you know, almost an act of preemption and preempting who or preempting what, well, that's where the problem was. So it had this fatal, uh, lethal ambiguity in it where 
those original states in the Confederation said, however, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but basically, however, um, uh, this is true as long as it doesn't uh, conflict with the legislation of the individual states. So you got a legislation of the union to acquire territory and legislation of the states to acquire territory. And of course they were going to conflict, right? And of course, history bears that out as, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, et cetera, Georgia claimed to have no Western boundary. So they, of course, in other words, were asserting the right to acquire there. The union was going to assert the same thing. It was a train crash ready, waiting to happen, but make the mistake. It was an attempt at preemption, maybe by both <laughs> to preempt the other. And it didn't work. So it's important to see that to see this line of thinking going through the historical uh, developments of this field. So then, you know, that's why that 1787, right before the 1789, uh, you know, uh, birth of the current, uh, the new constitution at that time, uh, that was 1787 was kind of the last gasp there <laughs> trying to make that work. And well, it didn't, but it was in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. So then we can get to the current constitution. Well, it's got the Commerce Clause. And, and, of course, the Supremacy Clause and all the clauses read together, as they're supposed to be. And the Commerce Clause gives Congress the express power to deal with the Indian tribes. Um, and like sort of the rest of the Commerce Clause, you know, only to Congress. It doesn't say anything about the states. It doesn't have that articles provision saying as long as it doesn't conflict with, you know, assertions of state uh, power. didn't have that. So in conjunction with the Supremacy Clause, then... You know, you can say that this is this grant to Congress and the Commerce Clause is in disregard of state legislation. It is clearly an exercise of preemption. Right? And and so we got to think of preemption that way. There's a lot more, but you now you get the idea. And, and we can talk about later then how that all comes together in Rakeen. Right. And so that really does help establish for me where preemption lies in this puzzle of federal Indian law. So let's lay another puzzle piece down, plenary power. How does that relate to preemption and the Burkine case generally later on? Um, well, um, first, but of utmost clarity, um, an exercise of that power of preemption is, is, a, is an exercise of plenary power, right? So um, maybe with some of the added nuances so that uh, the Congress is acting um, in conjunction with the Supremacy Clause to the disregard of the states. So, you know, you can kind of put all that together to get to that more understood idea of plenary that um, sometimes it sort of seems to mean absolute Um in my mind and the indigeneity mind, uh, it has more to do with relations as everything does when we try to think about it in our thinking. And so this has the more to do with the relationship that Congress has with all of the states. So it's in this plenary sort of position uh, and no one state can, can do it. They are preempted. And Congress instead will exercise this sort of plenary power. And that's what we find in the Commerce Clause. And, uh, you know, the, I, as far as I know, um, and you you all young people can find this in a heartbeat, I can't actually have to read cases still. Um, <laughs> you find the word plenary 
Uh, I think the first place in any sort of related context, that is, where the Supreme Court used the word plenary was in Gibbons versus Ogden, and it was construing the Commerce Clause. And, you know, and, and I believe it then cited Gibbons on a couple other cases, including reciting the word plenary in, um, I think it was Pollard versus Hagen or the Pershman case or good title case, some of those cases that followed along the same lines. And uh, it's a very important to see the relationship between preemption and plenary and what they actually mean there. So, and, and know that they actually use the word. Gibbons versus Ogden. This isn't a word that's just an Indian law. And there's no reason that the word should mean something different. You know, when we're talking about international commerce or interstate commerce, that just because we're talking about Indian commerce, right? It's the same commerce clause. It's the same word. Plenary is the same word as a word of construction. So it's important to, like we always should do, um, to the extent that we believe in democracy and Republican democracy, to read it against that logical context. And so if we do that, for example, let's say we, we read it this way, uh, Gibbons versus Ogden. The, the, in the Commerce Clause, the states and their people, it's important to say that because the 10th Amendment reserved it to the states or their people, but they didn't give. So it's important to say in the Commerce Clause, the states and their people gave the union the plenary power over the states and the people to deal with interstate commerce. That's that, you know, steeped in Republican democracy, those basic ideas of, you know, government by the governed. You know, you don't give the government power over somebody else. You give the government power over, over you. That's the sovereignty, the source of sovereignty, the the full, you know, sort of um, organic body of sovereignty. And so that's the way to say that. The Commerce Clause, the states and the people gave to the Union the plenary authority over the states and the people to deal um, with interstate commerce. Well, then you can go to uh, Pollard versus Hagen and others and say, well, the states and the people and the Commerce Clause gave to the Union the plenary power over the states and the people to deal with international commerce. And see, when you say it that way, there doesn't seem to be an issue with it. And we, we generally accept that after 200 years. Yeah, okay. Well, then Indian law has got this twist in it. And again, I think part of that is because of the siloization of these doctrines. But we should be saying the same thing. In the Commerce Clause, the states and their people gave to the Union the plenary power over the states and the people to deal with the Indian tribes. To say that completely consistently, them being the same Commerce Clause and the same plenary words. Uh, and that would help us understand if we would just say, repeat those things, you know, repeat after me, and start thinking about then commandeering. Well, if, you know, we'll jump ahead a bit, we'll come back, but if, if the Union and the, and the Congress is invoking the Commerce Clause to commandeer the states, it might be because, you know, the, the Discovery Doctrine and all the proclamations and Northwest Ordinance, they all bundled together. And the Commerce Clause recognizes that the, the states and their people gave Congress the power to do that. Now, did they give it all in its entirety? Well, no. So they should 
they have appropriate arguments about what the scope of that is. Uh, but make no mistake, uh, Congress's power came from the states and the people, and democracy requires that it be exercised over the states and the people, and that that's the way we have to understand it. And obviously the reason that's so important is because today, with this, again, uh, siloing of these doctrines, we get plenary power over Indian tribes. And then, of course, people, you know, tear their hair out over, well, where does that come from? It's extra constitutional. It's not justified. Not, well, yeah, because, because it wasn't the tribes and their people giving to the Union plenary power over the tribes and their people. Uh, it was presumably the states, since they're the source of that constitution. Well, Back to that point that Marshall made in the case about the king could only give what the king had. Well, the same applies in a, to the democratic sovereigns, to the people. People can only give what they have, right? So mm -hmm. they can't give the people of the states, the states and their people can't give plenary power over the tribes and the people. That, uh, that defies any sort of the democratic logic that this country, you know, had a revolution over to, to be born and goes around the world still fighting wars over that idea. So we have to read that right. I have to understand the, the logic of it. We, we have to figure out how to keep reading these things together. So, so even if we just repeat after me those plenary power things, I think that helps us get there. Yeah, that helps me just to hear it's phrased that way, where it's actually coming out of the silos and being discussed together. But let's continue to pull items out of silos. The next one I'm going to ask about is the concept of trust, trust, responsibility, trust doctrine. This can be a really confusing aspect in the question and answers of the oral argument. So I want to take the time to unpack that as well. Yeah, well, um, okay. Um, I do, this, I think it was Justice Kagan, I'm not sure, or maybe it was Sotomayor, I think it was, asking the one of the attorneys, the non-native, anti-native, <laughs> we call them that, um, attorneys, sort of in this context, which this is one of the things that actually jogged me to think this way, said, well, what about when Congress exercises this power over tribes? And she was kind of asking like, well, you know, why don't you have a problem with that? Um, and she was kind of spot on, but she didn't explain her logic for getting there. And that's what I'm trying to do to have us all sort of let's, Let's go back and figure out how the logic of this even leads her to ask a question that way. I don't know if she thought it through either, but more a lot of intuition that can lead you there, um, obviously, then, right? So why if you feel that way about the states, why not the tribes? And and the answer was, well, that's that's just an exercise of uh, the trust responsibility. Right? And just like that, we turn from preemption to plenary to ask a question about the tribe. Oh, that's the trust responsibility, right? He did also say, well, Congress had plenary power over tribes, but really that's just an exercise of this trust responsibility, a total deflection, right? And let me throw another piece of spaghetti out there. And, and uh, you know, it, caught, it, it there's so many moving parts that it, the argument became a juggling act and they had a difficult time with it. And so let's talk about that. This, this trust idea uh, is... Uh, best understood by giving it its historical context and by looking at a necessary bifurcation that occurred uh, through history. So we first hear the word guardian ward relationship in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, again, way back, 1831 or something. And um, 
and the court saying that uh, you know they're they are the tribes are not foreign or domestic they're uh, states with a capital S rather they are domestic dependent nations and you know we generally uh, um, uh, impute the trust idea first to that statement and I, I think that's accurate I think it was an accurate statement of what the court was talking about at the time that it was talking about that third prong of sovereignty you know the, there's the territory there's the uh, territory the peoples and the recognition and so when the court is you know giving some life to what this relationship looks like it's talking about the recognition the political recognition so i think it's appropriate to call that the trust relationship and i th and i think it is only a relationship because in in contradiction to the trust responsibility the only thing at play in the trust relationship was the relationship there were the, the united states and the bia which didn't exist at the time wasn't was not um managing lands or property territory for the tribes it was not managing lands for individual indians we were that whole discussion was simply about a relationship and so when we talk those together with preemption and plenary in that way and then think ahead to this distinction between a racial versus a political identity well and we want to conclude with well it's a political identity we're talking about a not a racial relationship but a political relationship, well, that's what was at stake. That's what was at play in the 1831 in Cherokee Nation versus Georgia was a political relationship. So yes, trust relationship, but that's different from a trust responsibility. The trust relationship is that political doctrine, political concept, or trust responsibility is a property-based concept. And when the United States indeed started attempting to manage territory property for the tribes, as we see in the Cook case historically, certainly for individual Indians, when you know there were these allotments, and then they were said, well, they'll be held in trust for 25 years. The good of that is they couldn't be sold. Generally, the bad of it was it apparently gave the BIA now being named the trustee or the United States being named the trustee sort of carte blanche to manage those allotments, right? So in the context of managing those allotments, the actual natural part of those allotments, you know, the, the, the timber, oil, gas, uh, grazing uh, lands, et cetera, um, um, is very much a, a property based relationship there and, and in fact when they were sold etc and they were put into individual indian money accounts we call them now in the federal government right that too is property and so that kind of trust responsibility that property-based trust responsibility idea is actually very much like a typical property-based common law trust you know it has a, has a beneficiary it has a trustee it has a corpus um, we can quibble a bit, uh, uh, but actually this makes the point about who was the settlor. If we think about all these concepts together, we can conclude that even though the United States came in with its cookie cutter, it was our cookies, right? <laughs> or it was our cookie dough. 
And so, you know, I feel like on my reservation, I was the settler, not the United States of America. They came in with these oddball cookie cutters and kind of messed things up. But they were not the settler. They were not the source of that property that is at play in that trust responsibility, in that property-based trust. My people were the source of that. And so, see, even that helps us, I think, think through that kind of thing. So, you know, recap, but importantly, trust relationship is a political concept. Trust responsibility is a proper property-based concept. And we can sue till we're blue in the face with the trust relationship that we attribute things like that are not property, not real property, not tangible property, things like healthcare and education. And we say we have treaty rights to them, even though we're hard pressed to actually find them in a treaty, especially to this day. Really, that's more about the relationship. Now, if we brought a suit, we'd probably lose, right? You know, Congress owes us this healthcare. Well, you know, if Congress decides not to fund it, I'm I'm going to be the first one standing in line angry about it. But the argument that there's a legal obligation um, is going to be a tough one. That's different from a trust responsibility. You're dealing with actual physical, tangible property, managing it, uh, et cetera, oil, gas, whatever it is. There's a corpus there for real. Those kinds of things have been the source of lawsuits, land lawsuits, uh, you know, right up to... Um, the kinds of lawsuits that 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 were at play in Cobell, the Cobell case, and those um, uh, that's different, and it's it's incumbent on us after years and years of articles talking about this trust thing to make sure that we know we are talking about two almost entirely, at least relatively, but almost entirely distinct, one political one property-based, and the political one is the one that helps us best think about the racial versus political distinction. Does that help? Does that make sense? Oh, yes. Yes. So the trust relationship is what we want to talk about here, because the next thing we want to talk about is some of the central issues in Brookeen, which are about the political status of tribal members, but also of the commandeering of state government power. So can we start to mold all these together into one larger yeah. Puzzle. Yeah. So you know we we um you know know that uh, the tribes are let's see federal Indian law actually hinges on their identity uh, as political entities and not racial entities, and if it hinged on uh, a race based entity, identity, it um, would invoke strict scrutiny under the Constitution. All these laws that deal with Indians, Indian Child Welfare Act just being one of them, that is the question, one of the questions in the case, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, you know, Indian Civil Rights Act, um, you know, three or four books of of volumes of of the United States Code and Code of Federal Regulations, uh, all arguably you know, suddenly subjected to much greater scrutiny, and I suppose a good many of them not being able to survive that scrutiny. So that's how important that is. The the cornerstone, the livelihood of the field of federal Indian law depends on that distinction. So that's why going through those the last things to get to the trust relationship and understand why that is the third prong of sovereignty at issue 
is is a way to think about this and and the perhaps the most important way to think about it. So, you know, we um we have a, a series of cases that make this distinction between political and, and, and racial. And um, but and I don't want to jump ahead to, too far, but we are finding ourselves in federal Indian law sort of nicely culturally wanting to talk less about the territoriality and more about the relational identity of our people. And that's okay. It's good as long as we don't do it at the expense of territoriality. Because if, if you put these things on the balance, as we talk about, and find the right relations between territory and peoples uh, as part of this the third eye recognition, um, we, you know, we know that they both have to be there. They both have to be in a proper relationship and proper balance. And sometimes our people will want to swing entirely one way to territory and another way to, to the relational at the expense of the other. We, we know better than that. If we are going to be you know, arguing that we know and understand indigeneity, then we know better than that. We know that they both are properly in that formula for right relations and balancing them and that they're both necessary for our sovereignty. And that's, a, that's a, you know, I mean, I'm sorry if all of a sudden I sound like I'm preaching. <laughs> that's important to say uh, out, out loud. So um, let's just say that if I fast forward it a bit, what we're doing, what we're also seeing, along with this tilt toward relational sort of sovereignty, is like the boundaries of the reservation, they're starting to lose their legal significance. Um, even internally, the tribes electing people who live outside, letting anybody who votes, used to be that maybe they had to come back and you know, had to identify with some part of the res today. It's just all based on blood, all relational. The exact kind of thing that is putting a case like Brackeen on the table and invoking this American sort of thinking, well, that sounds race-based, right? And we have to understand that that's the way they think. We, 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 can, we don't have to argue till we're blue in the face the way we think, but we know how we think. We have to understand how they think and, and, and why that matters. And so, um, you know, we, it, and it's not just internal to the tribes, it's external. We now have a rash of cases where tribal Indians, reservation Indians, want to be of the states. And that was never the case with the, with the old folks. If you're going to be a separate sovereign, well, you're separate. Well, what does separate sovereign mean? Well, what does sovereignty mean? Separate territory, separate peoples, separate recognition. But when your peoples start to overlap with their peoples, you're definitely losing the distinct peoples prong. And it's one thing to lose it if they are outside the territory. So we get our peoples that, like me, live in Madison, Wisconsin. It's one thing to lose that for me. It's another thing to lose that for my nieces and nephews who reside inside the reservation, inside another polity in a way that they're governed by distinct norms and values and beliefs and principles, and that's what makes them a distinct entity under the definition of sovereignty. Not that they have high cheekbones and black hair. It's because they have a distinct cultural set. And we, we seem to have forgotten that. So that's why it's important then when I, when I said, you know, we've got to talk about the states issue here, the commandeering part too. Now, if we go back through what I said, uh, we can 
maybe put on the table and then take it off quickly. Well, yeah, the feds are going to commandeer the states a bit under the Commerce Clause because that's what the states and their people told Congress to do about interstate commerce, about international commerce, and commerce with Indian tribes. This is precisely where the states and their people told Congress, you, you know, you do it. So Congress is taking that, that authorization of preemption and uh, enacting a, a plenary act and invoking that under the supremacy clause. And, and they took it at the expense of the people that authorized it. You know, in some way, nicely, democracy in action, right? Yeah. And um, Long so it's action, important. Even. Yeah. Important to read all those things together. So maybe I'm going off too far here now, but back to, you know, so what, I, what I've written about a few times is there is this our federalism in America between the union and the states, but I said there's this our other federalism too. And, you know, the states and the union have this relationship in a constitution, but we have a similar relationship in these treaties. And not everybody has a treaty, but there's sort of democracy requires treating entities equally. We call it the equal footing doctrine. Not all the states entered the union in the same way or at the same time either. But democracy requires, the Constitution doesn't, by the way. Democracy requires that they all be treated equally. That's the equal footing doctrine for the states. So if democracy is even just going to be applied consistently, it's going to work that way. So then it, you know, it gets a little deeper. Well, you know, the union and the states required this sort of federalism, supremacy in the states, and in, I'm sorry, supremacy in the union inherency in the state because that's the way the founders thought that's the only way that's going to work right um one of the founders you know writing we apprehend that uh you know two uh, coordinate sovereignties that's what that we apprehend that coordinate sovereignties would be a solecism in politics like one of the, i think one of the anti-federalism federalists wrote that um governor morris from Massachusetts wrote something of similar clarity uh, that um, you can't have two or more legislatures and one in the same state. I think those are the exact words he used that clearly, right? So they developed their federalism with that in mind. Well, so we can't suggest that the tribes and the United States sovereignties overlap unless we ask the same questions. You know, can you have these two legislatures? Why can't you? Well, how did you fix it over here? Well, one has supremacy and one has inherency. Well, the United States has nuclear bombs and we don't, right? The United States has the supremacy, okay, but then the tribes have the vast inherency. And that's the way Indian law has actually developed. But, you know, I always like to point out that the 10th Amendment and the Constitution, where it says, you know, what is not delegated um, in this Constitution to the Union, or prohibited by the Constitution to the states, shall be reserved to the states or the people. In other words, the states and the people are the source of it. They gave some, what they didn't give, they reserved to themselves. We have, uh, when we, the court finally had to address a similar matter and the overlap of these sovereigns, two and potentially three even, the court had to take, in the U.S. versus Winans case, take the state's equal footing doctrine off the table that doesn't apply in this context, because we have like an international obligation here, a treaty, invoking this supremacy clause. 
And the court, so then the court wrote using beautifully that same logic of democracy and Republican democracy, that treaties are to be construed as a grant of rights from the Indians, not to them, and a reservation of those not granted. I, I mean, if, if you were told you can't use the same words, but rewrite the 10th Amendment, that's kind of what it would be, all right? It's the same logic uh, steeped in Republican democracy as a cornerstone of these relationships. But like I said, we're, we're states' territory creeping into our reservations because of allotments. We know how bad that was. In some states, we have PL 280 with the state's territorial police powers creeping into our reservations. Then we have the state's people creeping in, but also our people creeping out and wanting to be part of that polity, wanting to be part of both. And so we are blurring the, the legal significance of the lines of our territory. We are blurring the legal significance then of the lines in our distinct peoples. And we are undermining our sovereignty by doing so. And a case like Brackeen, if you can take all these otherwise siloized doctrines and bring them back together and look at the important relationships between them, and run it from the beginning to the end, there's almost no other way to conclude but that. And so, you know, I, I hope that we'll take the opportunity to run through just some of the ones that you talked about today. I know you, we, we don't have a lot of time uh, left. The ones we talked about, preemption, the, the plenary, the trust, think about all those exercises of preemption. Think about plenary, where it came from, who it was deposited to, and the, therefore who it is applied over the right way. And so then what justifies this action over the U.S., over the tribes? Well, not that. Does the trust responsibility? No. Does a trust relationship? Well, you know, let's, you might think about what natives did in their treaties and having a long-term relationship with the United States and say, you know what, we, we did actually authorize some overlap in our sovereignty. As long as the logic uh, allows our sovereignty to continue. And here's how they did it. No reason why we shouldn't be doing that the same way and keeping all this stuff in mind. I, th I think that will help most. Um, and then, of course, understanding the commandeering argument and and for the states to understand that in a lot of ways, when they push back on an exercise of federal plenary power under a Clean Water Act or an Endangered Species Act or some act governing gaming in their states, their marijuana or hemp, uh, the tribes do the same thing. And for the exact same reasons. We're the inherent sovereignty here trying to grow a culture out of our territory and among our distinct peoples. We don't need this outside entity coming in and sort of severing the civic relationships between the polity and the people, between the state and the state citizens, or between the tribe and the tribe citizens. They, neither of us want that. And, and it's time to think that through and go forward with that so we can understand, you know, and, and explain to a court, and explain to law students, explain to, to everybody sort of that these doctrines are not you know, they didn't fall from Mars. Um, you know, they didn't, they, they're not unrelated. They don't belong in silos. They all grew up together here and they have to logically connect with each other. 
And they have to logically connect with each other, Chris, because tomorrow morning, my nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews, as is increasingly happening, wake up on that reservation, walk out the front door, and their first thought has to be, what am I doing today and what law will apply to that? And nobody else has to do it in that way. It's almost inhumane, but that's where we're headed. And it's, it's time for us to think this through and to fix that. That's a powerful conclusion. And thank you for that, Professor Monette. Uh, that, that comprehensive review is exactly what my final question was going to be. So I don't even have to ask it. I just want to see how these all went together. And that really sums it up very nicely for me. And it makes much more sense about what can be confusing because these are so separate, but not really. They all work together. As you said, they grew up together. I like the way that you phrased that. And that to take them as a whole is how you can understand these kind of situations and how on the ground your nieces and nephews feel this every day that they have to understand in a different way than other folks and other sovereignties do. Very good. Well, thank you again for joining the podcast today, Professor Monette. We've been discussing the U.S. Supreme Court case, Burkine v. Holland. Uh, again, I truly appreciate taking this, you taking the time to discuss with me. I think it's very important. Watch out for that opinion to be issued later this year. Any final thoughts yeah. before we go? No, I, I mean, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do this, Chris. And, you know, maybe when the opinion comes out, there'll be something to talk about again. There certainly will be other cases. So I hope we can do this again. Yes, we're, we have you on the docket already to have you back, I'd say. I'd oh, say that's, good. that's a safe thing. <laughs> okay. And Appreciate by the it, way, Chris. yes, thank you. And by the way, we will link to all Professor Monette's scholarship that he mentioned during our discussion today. Uh, thank you all for listening. For that complete listing of Professor Monette's work, you can visit the University of Wisconsin Law School repository. You can find these links in all of our previous podcasts at wilawinaction.law.wic.edu. Stay up to date on Wisconsin Law School Scholarship by subscribing to this podcast via the Apple iTunes Store or follow either at Wisconsin Law or at UW Law Profs on Twitter for updates on faculty news and publications. See you next time and happy researching.